Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. What a joy to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Thank you all for coming. Got a lot of empty seats here in the middle. Ben will notice that later. Our reading this morning will be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. I will read the passage, and then I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with, praise be to God. Again, it's Matthew chapter 26, beginning verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink of it new with you in my Father's house. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ted. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, still morning for a little, little while longer. This is weird that nobody sat in the middle, but that's okay. We'll move past that. Um, I have a very simple message for us today, and, um, and, and don't think that simple uh, means that it's lacking in power because we're going to be talking about the gospel. And there's nothing more powerful, uh, there's nothing that has more potential to change our lives than when we just reflect on and soak in the gospel. That's what the Lord's been doing for me this week, and so uh, it was a fitting sermon and a good time for us to look at the whole purpose of communion. Normally, uh, here at New King, we preach expositorily, which means that we go through books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, and we take it basically verse by verse, and we try to just pull out and, and, and show what it says um, a verse at a time. But today's sermon's going to be a little different. It's going to be topical because I wanted to do a deep dive into this topic of communion so that we understand it better and so we can appreciate it because it is an amazing 
gift to us. So there's a lot in this passage that we just heard that we're not going to get to talk about. A lot of really great stuff. I mean, the fact that Jesus sends his disciples into this town and he knows exactly what they're going to encounter, who's going to be there. And this person somehow already knows that Jesus is going to be coming there, it seems like, to, to uh, have the Passover dinner there. And uh, there's awesome stuff in here about how he knows who's going to betray him and exactly when that's going to happen and how that's going to happen. We're not going to get to talk about any of that. Uh, we're going to be talking about communion. And we're going to be talking about how communion connects back to this ancient meal called Passover. And we're going to see how there is so much beauty in that connection that God planned from the very beginning to help us to understand and appreciate the gospel more. So that's where we're headed. Um, let's pray together and we'll get started. Your word says, God, in Psalm 65, um, that when iniquities prevail against us, you atone for our transgressions. That is such good news, God. Wow. Father, I pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would use this word, your word, to... Open up our eyes afresh to see the gospel, to see the beauty of it, to see the (laughs) scandalous nature of it even. How incredible it is that you would forgive sinners, that you would atone for our sin against you. Lord, help, us, help this message not just to go to our heads, but to go to our hearts, where we can experience real transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, um, Jesus gave to the church two ordinances that we observe. So, he, he gave to the church baptism and communion. And these are two very clear, explicit commands that he gave to the church for the church to observe perpetually until he returns. And so um, baptism, we're a Baptist church, meaning that that we believe uh, in baptism of believers, of people who put their faith in Jesus as a sign of their faith, and we we baptize by immersion. Um, And Baptism, according to the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is a statement of beliefs that we would, uh, we would agree with as a church, this is the way that it defines baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. So if you've seen a baptism by immersion done, this is what it's all picturing. It's a person is symbolizing, it's showing outwardly what they have believed, that they have died to sin, that they've been buried in union with Christ, and that their old life is being left in the grave and they're being raised up 
to walk in newness of life. That's the way that, uh, for example, Romans 6 talks about our union with Christ and our baptism. And so the way that we do baptism is to show those things. It's a symbol of those things. Uh, Baptism is to the Christian life what a wedding is to a marriage. It, It doesn't make you a Christian, but it's the starting point, the jumping off point of your life of following Christ. So we have, for example, in Acts chapter 2, we see what happens when the church is born, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in power, and Peter goes out into the streets, filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them go out into the streets, but Peter preaches this gospel message to the crowds that are, that are drawn. And, and then here's what happens when they hear the gospel message about Jesus. It says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So you see this connection between believing, being baptized, and then being added to the church. And then here's what the church does. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So preaching the word and fellowship, community, to the breaking of bread. That's communion. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They're even doing this together in their homes over dinner, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So this is what we know from the scriptures about the very, very first church is that when people believed the gospel, they were baptized as like their entry point into this new walk of faith with Christ. And so baptism was something that happened one time it's a one-time event. It's, it's like your wedding. You just do it one time. But then communion, communion becomes this repetitive memorial act that becomes, it's very clear here, that it, it is a centerpiece of their worship. They're, being, they're, they're learning. They're being taught, right? They're fellowshipping. They're having community. And this is what their worship is centered around is the breaking of bread, And then they're praying. They're a praying community. So what is this? If if it's that central to the very first church, then there must be a lot to this, right? It must be important. It must be powerful. If if the Spirit would want His church to do this on such a regular basis, it must be a powerful thing, and it is. It's the ordinance whereby a Christian continues in the walk of faith. So baptism is the ordinance whereby a Christian begins the walk of faith, and communion, the Christian continues the walk of faith. I want to ask you this. Think back, if you're a Christian in the room, I want you to think back to the the days when you first believed the gospel. I want you to think back. And think about how you felt. Think about what it felt like to, for the first time, 
really believe that you were forgiven. To really believe that God didn't look at you with condemnation. Do you remember what it felt like? I do. I remember I was a junior in college and I remember when the gospel clicked for me and how it lit me on fire. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't stop talking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I, 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 was email, I was mass emailing everyone my testimony in the gospel. I was going to family members and friends and having conversations with them about what the Lord had done for me and was providing for them as well if they would believe. Do you remember what it felt like? Do you remember that excitement? Do you remember that freedom? Do you remember the lightness that you felt? The joy that you had? But let's be honest, it's hard to stay in that place, isn't it? Yeah. It's hard to stay in that place because of this broken world that we live in. But, but really, it's, it's, it's hard to stay in that place because we're still broken. We're still in this flesh, in these sinful bodies. Until we are rid of these things, we are going to struggle against sin and failure. And, and when we do, what happens? Our confidence in this gospel begins to diminish a little at a time. We, we begin to wonder, yeah, I know, technically, I know God forgives me, but it's so hard to feel it right now, right? So we believe, oftentimes this leads us to believe in an anemic gospel or a partial gospel that says, I know I'm forgiven enough to go to heaven one day but not enough to move on from the condemnation that I feel for my sins right now. We believe this weak gospel that keeps us trapped under condemnation and guilt and shame. And if we're honest, we choose to stay in that place because we know we really deserve it. We know ourselves. We know how many ways we fail God and all of the ways that we sin and fall short. We don't even know all the ways, but we just know a lot of ways. And so it can feel somehow right to stay in a state of mild depression and inner asceticism, beating ourselves up because we do deserve it after all. This does not honor the true gospel. That is a partial gospel. The real gospel, the true gospel when really embraced, when really understood, is scandalous. That His grace is washing over you like waves at the ocean. That every time you sin, more grace is lavished upon you to cleanse you to forgive you again and again and again and again. 
Amen. The true gospel is a gospel that helps us to really trust God. If He can really forgive me for all the stuff I have done in my past and even this week, then, yeah, I can really trust this God. I can really draw near to this God. I I can really worship this God. And it's been said that it's only the sins we know we've been forgiven of that we can ever be free of. We think just the opposite. We think, I need to keep hounding myself with guilt about this thing because that will help me to get victory. And that's absolutely wrong. It's absolutely wrong. What helps, what gives us victory is when our hearts are enraptured by the incredible grace of God, when we are caught up in this undeserved love that's been given to us, and suddenly we find ourselves melting, we find ourselves no longer feeling cold and and numb and indifferent and bored with God, we find ourselves excited and joyful and delighting in Him and wanting more of Him and enjoying Him. Praise God. God. We're going to, in a little while, if you guys are still awake when we get there, (laughs) Ted's going to be awake. We're going to look at a quote that has been rocking my world this week. Um, This quote talks about the power of the gospel to actually set us free from sin's grip. And it's been a catalyst. The Lord's been using this, these truths about the gospel. It's power when, when it's really believed, when the truth of the gospel is really believed, it's power to free us from sin by creating within us new loves and new desires. that's behind this whole sermon. Here's what Paul said in Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So we know, if you've been around for a little while, that to believe the gospel, that that is the gospel contains within itself. Jesus, when when I say the gospel, I mean the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that death and burial and resurrection contains within it the power to free us from sin's condemnation, to free us from judgment, to to get us into heaven, you could say. But did you know that that same gospel has the power also to free you from the grip that sin has on you right now? Practically? This day, right now, the gospel, the same gospel that you believed when you believe it, when you believe it in practice, it is also the power to free you from sin's presence in your life. The gospel doesn't only free us from sin's penalty, it frees us from sin's power. But we have to believe it. 
And we cannot mix it with the law because that weakens it. And so the full and free and unwatered down gospel has the power to free me from my addiction to sin, my shame because of sin, my sadness because of shame, and my anxiety because of fear. The gospel has the power to set you free from all of that. Praise God. It produces in us an energizing joy and love that results in a holy, happy, fruitful life. I'll say that again. The full and free and unwatered down, unleashed gospel, when you really believe it, has the power to produce in you an energizing joy and love for God that results in a holy, happy fruitful life. That's this whole message. I'm just going to keep repeating that until it gets into our hearts. It's one thing to know something in your head, isn't it? And another thing for it to get down into your heart. So what does that have to do with communion? Well, communion is about Coming back to, it's, it's, it's the Lord's table. It's often called the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or the Eucharist, which is the blessing or thanksgiving. And it is about coming to the Lord. And as we, as we interact with these elements, with bread and the fruit of the vine, we are remembering the gospel. We're remembering his body broken for us, his blood spilled for us, and we're, we're, the, the goal of communion is that you're going back to the way that you felt when you first believed. You're stirring your heart to see it again, not just with the eyes of your mind, but with the eyes of your heart. And, and the goal of communion is that you skip away from it. That, that, that you float away from it that you feel really, really, no, really, I'm forgiven. (laughs) And I can hardly believe it, but I do believe it. I really am forgiven. That's the goal of communion. Because it's the joy that I was forgiven of the last sin that compels me to turn away from the next. As long as I'm still trapped in this mild state of depression because of my past sins, I'm never going to have the energizing joy to say no to the next. And so you see, the gospel is the power of God to save us. Amen. Amen. Communion is us re-examining. The gospel has been described as a diamond um, in that you can look at a diamond and depending on which way you turn it, in which way the light is hitting it, you can see different beauties and, and different glory and different splendor that you didn't see before. And that's the way the gospel is. It is simple, yes, but it is not simplistic. 
So that's the purpose of this message. That's the purpose of communion. What, what we see in this passage is that Jesus begins, he institutes this thing called communion right in the middle of a Passover meal. So it, it's important that we understand what is the Passover meal. What was that? I don't know if you caught that, but it's Jesus right in the middle of this meal that he institutes communion. So in order to understand Passover, we need to go back in our Bibles, back to the book of Exodus. And in the beginning of Exodus, what we find is that God's chosen people, the Israelites, are in slavery in Egypt. And they've been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And God determines that he is going to free them. And the way that he does it is he appoints a servant named Moses to go to the leader of... Oh, hi, girls. My girls, no big deal. Uh, he, goes, he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh to, and to say, let my people go. Demand that Pharaoh let his people go. Well, he goes to Pharaoh, demands that he let... God's people go, Pharaoh refuses. And um, he refuses, and so God brings the plagues. Maybe you've heard the stories. There's ten plagues. They're judgments upon the sin of the land and the, and the idols of the land. And he brings one plague after another. And after each plague, Moses returns. Okay, we, are you going to let him go now? Moses again refuses. And so another plague comes, another judgment for sin and for the idols of the land. And so there's ten plagues until finally Pharaoh's heart is broken down and he says, fine, get out of here. Go. Well, the tenth plague, the one that finally does the trick, is the death of every firstborn throughout all Egypt. And that includes the firstborn of all people and animals. But... God provides a way for His own chosen people, though they also are sinful, to be spared from this judgment on sin that's being poured out. Praise God. And the way that He does it is He gives them the Passover. So He instructs the Israelites to kill a male lamb, a year old, that's without spot or blemish, and one lamb for each household. And they're to to kill this lamb, have its blood drained into a bowl, and then they're instructed to take some of that blood and place it on the lentils and the posts of the door. And then the families are to roast the lamb, eat it, along with unleavened bread, bitter herbs. And here's what God said would happen that night if they would do this. Exodus 12, 23. It says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So that night, The destroyer did, in fact, come through the entire land and kill the firstborn. In every home in Egypt, there was weeping and wailing throughout the land, the Bible says. 
But the Israelites who had the blood of a lamb on their door were spared. The destroyer did in fact pass over them. Now, it's very helpful to put yourself into the story. This is the way you ought to read the Bible, by the way. As you read the Bible, put yourself into the story. And I want you to imagine in this story that you are a family, your family is in Egypt and you're an Israelite family. And you have heard this promise that if, if the Lord sees the blood of the lamb on the door, he'll pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter the house. And so you, you participate in this Passover meal. And then that night, you are huddled in your home with your family. And you begin to hear the screams and loud cries of neighbors a few streets away. And it's not just a few screams, but it's a chorus of weeping and wailing and screaming as people hold their loved ones in their arms who have died. Spouses, children, parents. And you hear these sounds moving through the city from street to street. And you know that the destroyer is coming closer to your home. You look around your home and you look in the eyes of your spouse and your spouse is a firstborn and you see fear, confusion and you look in the eyes of your firstborn child and you see, you see terror as the screams get closer and closer. What is your hope in that moment? What do you cling to in that moment? Is it your good deeds? Is it your, your record, your, your good record? Is that what you cling to in that moment? No. Because you, you know how many times you've failed God. You know the ways that you've broken His law. So what do you cling to? Do you cling to a fresh resolve to be better this time? No, because you know how many times you've made that commitment and it didn't stick. So what do you cling to in that moment as the screams get louder and closer? One thing. The blood on the door. That's it. The blood on the door and the promise that was made concerning that blood. What was the promise? The words that you were told When he sees the blood, the Lord will pass over the door. When he sees the blood. And in a moment, the destroyer comes and goes, and everyone in your home is spared. Why? Why did God allow that family, those families, to be spared? Well, the book of Hebrews gives us the answer. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is all about The fact that it was faith. In all of the stories of the Old Testament, it was faith that that God counted as righteousness for people. And here's what it says in Hebrews 11, 28. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. When the Israelites acted upon the promise, when they acted upon the word 
When the Lord sees the blood, the Lord will pass over the door. They were exercising faith. And when we believe God's promise of salvation, it is credited to us as righteousness. This is what the whole Old Testament contains, is people believing, looking forward into the future and believing a promise that God had made, that He would send a Messiah, one who would come and save His people, ultimately would save them from their sins. And it was belief in that promise, confidence in that promise that God credited to them as righteousness. And for us today, we look back at a promise that Christ's death on the cross and burial and His resurrection is what provides for us our freedom from sin, our forgiveness. And it's belief in that promise that God looks at and credits to us as righteousness. Can you believe it? That it's really that that God looks at and says, that's a righteous person. So, for thousands of years, the Israelites... They continued to observe this Passover meal. God instructed them every year at the beginning of the year, I want, you to, I want you to have this meal again. Why? So that you won't forget. Because you're forgetful people, and, and so I need you to have this meal. And so he instructs them to, to do this, to observe this meal as a way of reminding themselves of what happened, that God stepped into their hopeless situation and rescued them. And and not only did he rescue them out of slavery, but he also provided a covering for the judgment that they deserve for their sin. Is that not amazing? And so this, he gives this to them, and, and they have been practicing this meal for thousands of years when we get to this story that we read in Matthew. For thousands of years, every year, they've eaten this Passover meal in obedience to God. And now Jesus says, we're going to do this together, disciples. And in the middle of that meal, he turns it and he says, now, let me show you what this has always actually been about. It's always actually been about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It's always actually been about His blood that when sprinkled upon the hearts of His people would cause God's judgment to pass over us. It's always actually been about us being set free from slavery to the domain of darkness and to our own sin. Not of our own doing, but because God stepped in to our hopeless situation and did it himself. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's saying there's a new covenant that I'm about 
to begin, that I'm about to inaugurate, when my, when my blood is spilled, it's going to start a new covenant that's going to seal God's people. Those that enter into that covenant by faith, those people are going to be sealed as God's people. So he tells them to do this in remembrance of him. We get that from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Paul gives us a little bit more detail about this. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So this is, this is a memorial. It's about remembering. But, but I want us to understand that I think that there's a difference in just remembering something with my mind and remembering it with my heart, right? And so this isn't just about remembering some facts about the gospel that we can list off, because we, can, we, we basically always remember those. If you've been around the church for a while, we know that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross in our place and he took the sins of the world upon himself and God's wrath was poured out on him for sin and he died and he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave. It's not just about remembering those facts. Satan remembers those facts, doesn't he? He can't forget those. So what, is, what kind of remembering is it? It's a remembering at the level of the heart. In the same way that we can... I remember my high school graduation, but not really, you know. I mean, I can remember that it happened. I can remember where I sat. I was about three seats down from TIFF. And I remember looking over there because we, we, were, we were broken up at the time. And I remember like, looking over at her, shaking my head. I remember that, right? But, but it's really hard for me to like put myself there again and really remember it. The Lord's table is about putting ourselves at the cross. The Lord's table is about seeing His body broken, hanging on a tree, becoming a curse for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what this, that's what this little act that we do that, that could so easily become just a ritual and a tradition and Oh, it's not, that's not what it is. It is beautiful. It's to remember the gospel as if we were learning of it for the first time. It's in that kind of remembering, when we remember with our hearts, when we see the bigness, the grandness of the gospel, the the free-flowing, beautiful, awesome power of God, His grace poured out, lavished upon us. It's when we remember that, that grace gets a hold of our hearts and begins to transform us at the level of our desires. 
At the end of the day, isn't that what we need changed? At the end of the day, when we sin, isn't it just because that's what we wanted most? But the promise of the new covenant is a new heart. The promise of a new covenant, of the new covenant is a heart of flesh. The heart of stone being removed and a soft heart being put in. A heart that now wants God more than we want what we want. It's new desires, new love. Now the quote, the quote that has rocked me this week. Let's look at it together. Thomas Chalmers, he wrote, The expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Listen to this quote. The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel. The more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine of godliness. This is one of the secrets of the Christian life. Retain a single shred or fragment of legality with the gospel and we raise a topic of distrust between God and man. We take away from the power of the gospel to melt and to conciliate, which just means to return us to a place of trust. For this purpose, the freer it is, the better it is. And never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when under the belief that he is saved by grace. He feels constrained thereby to offer his heart a devoted thing and to deny ungodliness. We know we're saved by grace, right? But do you really know it? Do you really believe it? Do you live in such a way that shows forth, that reflects that you really believe that you are saved by grace? If you do really believe it, then guess what? That belief will produce sanctification in your life because it will compel you to lay your whole life down for Him in response. Not because you feel like you must in order to be accepted, but because you know you are. And you want nothing else but to give Him your all. That's the power of the gospel to transform our lives. The Lord has been this week just opening my eyes afresh to this free, untainted, pure, full gospel. And just showing me how often I do include a shred of legality with my gospel. How often I do add a little performance on top. And how that weakens the real gospel, the true gospel's power, not only to forgive me of sin, but to free me from it. That's my prayer. My prayer this week has been that you too would have the same awakening, a fresh awakening. And, and some of you, I think, you, you, uh, you're feeling that even through this sermon. You're beginning, to, you're beginning to see it. And there's more to see. But you're beginning to see it, and, and that's exciting. And we're going to, in just a little bit, 
we're going to take communion together. We're going to ask the Lord to just do a miracle. This is, that's what this is. You can't make this happen. You can't make revelation and spiritual things happen. Only God can illuminate our hearts. Only God can grant sight where we've become blind. But He does. He does when we ask. And so we're going to take communion together in just a moment, but I want to walk us through some things before, before we take it. Um, because I want, when, when, when we leave here today, I want you to leave here feeling like you're floating in awe of this gospel. Did you know, Christian, that God forgives you? Like really, all the way, completely forgives you. Maybe you just need to hear that again. God, because of Christ, if you are a believer, totally and completely forgives you for your sin. Not just your old sin from before you were a Christian. I'm talking about the sins you committed this week. Praise God. So as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, I want to start with confession of sin. The, the practice of confessing sin is a powerful thing, and it's not intended to keep us navel-gazing and always looking at all of our failures and not looking at Christ. That's not the point. The point of confession of sin is to get it out there, to repent, agree with God about it, turn away from it, Allow the blood of Christ to cleanse you from it and then move on and stop living in that past. Move on into the, the new future from glory to glory. That's what confession of sin is for. And in fact, it's supposed to be done very regularly. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he not only said pray that every day God would give you your daily bread, but also pray that he would forgive you of your trespasses as you forgive those who trespass against you. We're to continually, each day, confess our sins, believe the gospel again afresh, and allow the gospel to be medicine for that place in our soul that we've wounded with our sin. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 31. He said, let a person examine himself then, and then... And then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, some kind of confusing language there, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's saying, if you eat and drink the Lord's, if you, if you participate in communion without doing some discerning of yourself, of the sin that you need to repent of, you're eating and drinking discipline, judgment discipline on yourself. Not, not condemnation, but judgment discipline. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. This is what Paul's teaching, is that when we come to the Lord's table, we should do some very honest self-examination and look at the sins in our lives and confess those things to God. Bring those things out into the light with your, in your relationship with God. Confess them, agree with God about them, and then turn from them 
and, and, and move on. So I want to give us time to actually do that right now before we move on to the next pieces of considering the, the connection between Passover and communion. And so let's just take a moment right now to pray. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 through 20. He said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So right now, we're going to ask the Lord to show us sinful thoughts, motives, desires, words, actions, even things that God wanted us to do that we didn't. And as He shows you, you confess those things to the Lord. Go ahead and do that now. Now here is what the gospel says. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 Do you believe that? Those sins that came to mind just now, when, when you allowed yourself to stop and think, those sins that you're ashamed of, that you feel broken over, those sins, he says, those that you confessed, he forgives you. These are his words. And cleanses you from the way that that defiled you. That's a promise from the scriptures. We're commanded to believe these promises in the way, in the same way that the saints of the Old Testament believed the promises of God. Do you believe this promise? Don't suppress this by your unrighteousness. That's what we tend to do. We press this down. Surely not, God. Believe it. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One more. Hebrews 10, 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Those sins that, that we confess and repent of, He remembers no more. He cleanses us from the ways that defiled us. This is the good news of the gospel. Now I want to, as we get ready to, to do this, I want to quickly 
run through some connections again in our minds from Passover, that ancient Passover meal, to communion, to just help us appreciate the gospel a little bit more as, as we get ready to partake of this. In celebrating Passover, God's people remembered their slavery and that, they had, that God had stepped into their hopeless situation and He both judged sin and at the same time set them free. In celebrating communion, we remember our past slavery to sin and to selfish desires and to the domain of darkness. And we remember that God stepped into our hopeless situation and that on the cross, through Christ, He both judged sin and set us free from sin. In celebrating the Passover, God's people remembered that it was only because of the death of the innocent lamb and the applied blood of that lamb that the destroyer passed them by. It didn't matter what kind of week they'd had that week, what sins they'd committed in their past, or even the strength of their resolve in the present. One thing and one thing alone kept them safe in the storm of God's judgment, the blood of the Lamb. And so in communion, we remember that it is only because of the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and His applied blood to our hearts that God's judgment passes us by. And this is the good news. Because of the Lamb's blood applied to our hearts, we are clean, all the way clean, not based upon the kind of week you had or the strength of your resolve today or even your performance in the future. If the blood of Christ is applied to you, then there will never be condemnation toward you. And in the storm of God's judgment on the last day, regardless of what you've done, you will be safe for one reason and one reason alone, the blood of the Lamb. In celebrating the Passover, the people of God renewed their faith in the promise that one day God would send the Messiah to deliver His people from their sins. It was their faith that commended them before God for by works of the law, no human being is justified. In celebrating communion, we renew our faith in the gospel. We once again cling to the truth that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the only way that I can be justified before a holy God. Uh, band, if you want to come on back up. We believe this not only in our heads, but in our hearts. We ask, God, would you produce this belief in us? Would you do this, God? We come to the table, to the Lord's table, and we bring the gospel up close again, this diamond in its beauty, and we look at it afresh. At Jesus' broken body and spilled blood. And we affirm the truth that this perfect life was a sufficient sacrifice, even for the specific sins I committed this week. At the Lord's table, my present failings are confessed and repented of and forgiven purely as an act of free, generous, and boundless grace. So, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, I invite you to the Lord's table. 
We come to the Lord's table together. You should have one of these underneath your seat. You go ahead and take it out. And we're going to celebrate the gospel together. Let me pray one more time. Lord, would you bless these elements as we set them apart for this holy communion? Would you grant to us burning hearts just as you did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus and as you did for them, reveal yourself to us in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Take the bread. We remember that the body of our Lord was sacrificed to supply us, us struggling sinners, with the endless resources from His storehouses of grace, whatever our need. Take and eat. And two, we take the cup. And we remember that the blood of our Lord was poured out for us in order that we could be sprinkled with it. And that now, because of His blood shed, we are eternally secure. The judgment of God will forever pass over us because our sins have been put away entirely. Drink in faith. Now let's worship the Lord with a clean conscience and the joy of our salvation.